Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, everyone. This is Charles Marshall, live broadcasting from Southern California. Today is February 15th, 2018. The West Coast Foreclosure Show is broadcast every other Thursday of the month. On alternating Thursdays, Neil's show is broadcast. And Neil will, of course, continue to broadcast his show every other Thursday. I'll be on the West Coast Coast Foreclosure Show every other Thursday. This show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Thank you. Any amount that you're able to put forward is appreciated, and you can donate directly on the blog by selecting the donate button on that very blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. Now, I've got Bill Padalo with me again, which I always appreciate him being a part of this show as he always brings very uh, on-point, detailed, and, you know, frankly, um, interesting analysis in terms of how he presents the topics that we discuss on this program. It's, it's great to have you on again, Bill. Welcome. Uh, my pleasure, Charles. Good to be back with you as always. <clears throat> and for listeners out there, I do want to, uh, to let you know it's, it's kind of one last time, as it were, about the webinar, you know, so for, for the old schoolers amongst us, that's a seminar that's on the web. And this webinar has been put together by Neil and the, the foreclosure experts associated with Neil, some of them. And we're going to be putting this on, uh, as, as I think m- many of you, maybe most of you have, have heard by now or, or seen it on the blog, but I'll, I will make one more plug, so to speak, on behalf of what I think is going to be a very informative and, and even at times entertaining presentation. And that is to take place uh, tomorrow, 10 a.m. Pacific time, 1 p.m. Eastern time. And at this stage, if you're still not on board, where you can get on board 
is by going to info at lendinglies.com. That's info ampersand at lendinglies.com. And TL is who you'll be interacting with there, and she'll be able to uh, to take you into the webinar even uh, even if you're not able to, to engage this until tomorrow morning. So that being said, today's topic is table funding. Now, this is a big uh, aspect of foreclosure law. I would not say that it's been unexplored because it has been explored. Uh, it's been explored by me, if I may say so. It's been explored by a lot of other attorneys around the country, primarily in non-judicial contexts, but also in judicial foreclosure contexts. And California has specific law related to this. You'll find that law in the finance lenders law, which is also known as the California Financial Code. And what, what that law is directed at generally is California being what it is. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a land of dreamers. It's also a, a, a land of hustlers. And it's been that way for a long time. So, you know, there's there's a history to some extent of mortgage brokers misrepresenting what they're doing when they're arranging a, a foreclosure. And I meant to say when they're arranging a mortgage origination or a mortgage refinance. In other words, there'll be a number of cases where borrowers will go to individuals who hold themselves out Sometimes it's mortgage brokers. Sometimes they don't even hold themselves out as mortgage brokers. They make it look like and sound like they're going to be the originator of your originating mortgage loan or your refinance, which for every borrower is always an origination, whether it's a refinance or not, because it's a new loan. And so it's kind of a history. It's not a huge history. It's not a huge problem, but it's a big problem for everybody's involved with it, and that is there will be parties sometimes, and, you know, it's not just mortgage brokers who would do this, but there would be, you know, third parties who would hold themselves out, make it look like they're the real lender, they're the real provider of the funds. And, you you know, you do your closing, and then all of a sudden you've got all kinds of problems after the closing with the loan. And you can't even get a hold of who you thought was the lending party because the lending party is gone. And, you know, who you thought was on the loan documents as the originator of the loan and the funder of the loan, which is the critical piece, they're not even there anymore. Now, federal law, specifically TILA, that specific act, which many of you will recognize from, you know, the rescission discussions we've had on this program, we're not going to get into rescission today, but TILA is, is a significant part of this table funding terrain as well because TILA becomes involved because, and this is, by the way, parenthetically, part of the purpose of the California, the California Code and the California, that, that is to say, again, the financial code and the finance lenders law related to uh, 
mortgage origination. TILA and the California laws, what they both have in common is it's critical from their point of view that you have the real lender with real money making a real loan. Uh, many times the problem there is the disclosures. And the interesting thing is, at least in the TILA terrain, regulators have often treated a pattern of table-funded loans as predatory per se. One is almost inclined to say, ha, at this point, because we're so far from those days. But back in the 60s, that, that treatment uh, was pretty typical. In fact, if Neil were on this show right now, he would be able to tell you all about that. So what what the uh, the so-called originating lenders did in, in connection with the whole foreclosure meltdown, they set up, you know, what's called, and some of you may have heard the term, warehouse lending, and that's where the originator borrows money. They're actually borrowing it from the real lender, and therefore the real lender is essentially hidden from view, and you as the borrower don't even know who you're dealing with. Now, going back to the California context, though, what I'm about to say also applies beyond California. There's a very big MERS component to these, to these circumstances because what will happen in, in a lot of loans, you know, that we talk about on this show all the time, you know, generated after the foreclosure, you know, crisis started, you know, circa 2008, all the way up to 2014. Though, frankly, these issues have not gone away. I even see originations and refinancings in the last one to two years that have some of these same markers. And, and when, what is that? What happens is MERS is named as the beneficiary in the actual loan documents. And they'll always use the same catchphrase, acting solely as nominee for the lender. But in effect, the lender ends up being disguised. Um, there's what's called a men, member number, and I won't get into details on that now. I think that's for a future show. But the, the bottom line is you've got MERS supposedly acting as the nominee, you know, really representing that they're in the same capacity as the beneficiary, which is a, a big finesse that unfortunately the courts have let them get away with. And they're doing this all the while there's, a, there's another named lender on the deed of trust. I mean, from a common sense point of view, this makes no sense. However, again, uh, courts have largely signed off on MERS' role at this point. And I'd like to bring in uh, Bill at this point to to discuss, you know, his take on, on table funding a bit further because he has a lot of detailed analysis, as he so often does, on, on this topic as as with so many other topics. So, Bill, if you could uh, provide your input, I'd appreciate it. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um... Some of this information I'm going to touch on in tomorrow's seminar on some of the evidence and what to look for. Um, one of the key questions or the most common question people ask me when they come to me, and it's always about the money trail. And if I can trace and tell them and prove where the funds came from. And uh, I just want to make sure everyone understands that that's a very difficult task to 
to do outside of formal discovery, and usually that's the type of information on the receipts and wire transfers, things that you have to be able to specifically seek in discovery and, and usually explain why you have reason to uh, want that information instead of you know being on a uh, what they call a fishing expedition. Um, from an evidentiary standpoint, <clears throat> what I see, uh, and I've been pointing to this for a lot of years, and, and I, I know it, it, uh, it's relevant to cases throughout the United States, and I know that um, I've done a little bit more extra research uh, in California regarding this issue, but um, when I identify loan data within a trust, uh, the remittance data and the origination data that's provided to the investors from the uh, trust administrators or master service or whoever is reporting that data uh, since the inception of the loan uh, will have a couple of key indicators in that data, one of which is called the origination data, who the originator uh, of the loan was, and also sometimes provides the funding date uh, in there specific to um, the loan that is alleged to have been securitized. Um, what's really clear in, in many, many cases is the deception, really, um, of how MERS is used on the deeds of trust and mortgages in the use of that MIN number that you referred to. That's that 18-digit MERS identification number across the top that usually appears. Um, in that MERS identification number, the first three digits, or first seven digits, are assigned to the MERS member uh, who is registered with them. And that's going to identify who the party is that is responsible for that typical number. So, one of the first signs that I see oftentimes in deception in terms of uh, trying to disguise who the originator, the true lender source of funds is, is that when MERS is named as the beneficiary nominee, um, on the deed of trust, that seven-digit MERS member identification number belongs to an entirely different entity than the name lender on the contract. So, for example, uh, I had a, a mortgage that had First Magnus Financial named as the lender and MERS acting as its nominee. However, when I traced the MERS identification number on that particular contract, it comes back to Sierra Pacific Mortgage doing business as first financial or funding, um, a completely different entity. And, and that entity also appears as the originator of the loan in the internal data. So right there, that's a, that's a number one sign that you have of their, that they're trying to disguise who the actual lender and party is that's funding the loan. Um, now, in California finance law, and it's a, it, it, I'm aware that there are a lot of complex um, uh, codes there, but one of which is my understanding, and maybe you can uh, confirm this for me, Charles, is that many of these parties, if they were going to originate and sell these loans into the secondary market, were required to have a, a, a CFL, a California Finance Lender License. And what I'm finding when I run the checks of the entities behind the curtain that do have their fingerprint kind of embedded uh, in the uh, MERS identification code and in the internal data, a lot of those entities were not registered or licensed in the state of California as finance lenders. Uh, and I think that potentially is a very big issue 
Um, and, and of course, this is, goes to the heart as to why you have deception in, in these uh, contracts is, you know, clearly the party who was signing their name on the dotted line um, wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't being disclosed as to who were the actual parties that they were contracting with. Um, and so I still believe that this is a very strong, um, or evidence can be provided anyway to still try to, you know, make this argument effectively as you're doing, uh, to try to, you know, get some traction on this, um, because of some of the other, you know, the natures of, of what they're doing in these contracts and the deception aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. You know, the information you just provided, and it it shows how this, you know, to use that word again, I mean, this is really a big finesse that unfortunately the courts are signing off on. And, you know, the courts are signing off on this at least at, at the level of, of kind of, I, I would call it, illegitimate substantive law in terms of how it's been interpreted for the most part. I mean, I do, you know, let's put it this way. I have seen cases in California where the, the table funding argument is moving forward. It's getting past the mirror. It's getting past motion dismissed. I, I do have to cautiously say as well that uh, there are cases I've been, associated with some of these cases as myself where judges have shot down the table funding argument and their primary basis basis for doing so is they treat the, uh, the table funding aspect as being sanitized by warehouse lending and they treat warehouse lending as if it's just some completely routine financing procedure that, again, to use the word, I mean, I would say they're allowing the, the, the institutional players here to launder the originating funds of a loan. I mean, in many ways, the money is laundered. I think that's an apt analogy. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely, but the the warehouse aspect of it, the warehouse lending aspect of it, that's still very much a presumption because not very often uh, do I see in cases where the opposition comes in admitting to the warehouse lending or providing any details related to it. It's sort of um, a presumption that is made based on a set of facts that it appears that this was warehouse funded, but kind of what I was mentioning a second ago is that there are specific um, entities who are, uh, again, named as the, uh, in the MERS identification number, who are not licensed in California. For example, I've got a, a, an entity who is named Universal American Mortgage Company of California, and they they're based out of uh, Miami, Florida, but the MERS identification number is assigned to a different entity that's close in name, but it's Universal American Mortgage Company LLC at a different address. And what I'm pointing out is that some of these parties are secretly lending money, whether it's warehouse lending or wherever it's coming from, but the true fact of the matter is is that they're not 
they're not licensed to have had any part in the in the transaction and that's why they're hiding themselves and and what i was reading your brief earlier and maybe you can touch on this is that there's some aspects here about uh these these contracts being unenforceable and void if they were not licensed to lend money to begin with is that, am i correct that's how i believe the law should be interpreted and it's absolutely correct the real originating provider of the funds under California law is supposed to be registered as a finance lender, basically, uh, under exactly the rubric that you just mentioned. And this is not the case in the vast majority of warehouse lending scenarios. And a huge percentage, I don't know numbers, but I, I, I very much suspect it's more than 50%. It must be, might be much more, much higher than 50% of warehouse lending arrangements happen through this securitization situation. That is to say, where warehouse lending is neither transparent nor disclosed. And that's the whole point. I mean, it, courts are allowing this kind of institutional framework and somewhat arguably legitimate in some context context practice of warehouse lending it becomes a fig leaf apart from anything else to and it also provides the courts an out to have an explanation for why they will allow this this type of funding to happen in a securitized loan environment because again there's three fundamental problems here those fundamental problems are you don't have transparency. The borrower doesn't know that this is going on in the vast majority of cases, or it's buried within the documents and legalese, so the borrower doesn't really know that it's going on, whether or not it's buried in fine printed in a document. And related to the transparency is the disclosure, and those are very similar, of course. And the disclosure having not really been made, either literally or meaningfully. And then as you pointed out, Bill, the other critical third third element here is they're not complying with finance lending laws where they're supposed to be registered with the state. Because, again, even if you're looking at this in a, in a, in a much broader, uh, you know, kind of visual frame, and you're talking about this problem generally, not just as it relates to securitized, uh, loans and that type of thing. When you're looking at it through the broader frame, you know, the California legislature knows that there's a problem here. That's why they pass laws because there was a problem and there still is a problem of illegitimate funders or the people posing for the funders saying, yeah, we're doing the origination of your mortgage loan, when in reality they're not when in reality the money is coming from somewhere else. My well, main, yeah, my main purpose of bringing up the warehouse lending aspect is only to say that courts are using it as an, as an excuse to sign off on the institutional positions in these cases. I certainly don't think it's legitimate, but unfortunately the courts do in a number of cases. Yeah, and, and and real quick, I mean, there's there's a whole another side and aspect of this, and that does come from the brokering side of it. And back in the day, 
look, these mortgage brokers um, were running fast and furious um, where, you know, most states required even at that time that brokers had to be licensed or registered within their states that they were originating loans. But it was very common for mortgage brokers to have a friend or a contact or somebody, let's say, uh, in California, they, they have a potential client, they want to do a large loan, and they're not licensed in California. So they just uh, contact a buddy in the in the business, and they basically would share and use their names, use their MIN registrations, anything else to uh, try to uh, to make money and originate a loan out of state where they weren't licensed. And there was a lot of that going on as well. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a large genesis for this this situation being addressed. One more thing I'd like to address at our show today. Uh, that you brought my, to my attention earlier today is you had a situation in Arizona that I think, uh, you know, really relates to uh, this show today, but also it's, it's, it's something that would be useful for borrowers all around the country to know about whether they're in a judicial or non-judicial foreclosure state. I mean, what, what, what is it uh, you were, you were letting me know about it. You can tell the listeners about that. Well, yeah, real quick, I just, you know, just a, a warning out there to folks that go out and, and try to find an attorney to handle their cases. Um, I had a situation this past week where I provided a pretty detailed report on one of the entities that we've talked about on this show. It's LSF9, uh, Master Participation Trust. But uh, I did a pretty comprehensive report for a client in Arizona. Uh, the client went in and, and put a retainer down with a law firm, and uh, the attorney uh, was pretty um, – energetic about taking the case obviously and wanted to set up a conference call with me and I ended up spending about uh, within well 20 minutes into the phone conference with the uh, attorney my red flag started going all up because he began grilling and asking questions that typically the bank lawyers ask of me um, wanting every every case I've ever worked on against these entities and name uh, turn over all this information and uh, immediately I went to check out his name and his law firm and found out that uh, uh, right in his bio or whatever for, for his um, firm, uh, and I can pull it up right here, but he states that uh, he represents banks in defending suits that brought against them on claims of wrongful foreclosure and related contentions. And so I went, I shot right back at him and said, hey, did you, you represent the banks? And that's like clearly what I can see here. Did you uh, disclose that to your client? Well, uh, within minutes, he was wiring back the uh, retainer money, dropped the client like a hot potato, and and went and ran and disappeared. And so, uh, thankfully, my, my client has found another attorney to to take on the case. But basically, I mean, it's pretty sleazy to to uh, pretend that you're going to represent this party and not disclose you uh, represent banks in these types of issues, and then to try to seek all the information you can out of me uh, that I'm sure he's going to weaponize and use it you know, to his advantage somewhere along the line, I can't say for sure. But it's a warning to those out there to ask the question when you go in and, and uh, are talking to attorneys to say, listen, um, up front, uh, have you ever worked for the banks? Have you ever had them as clients? You, you have to ask the question because clearly, this in this case, uh, he didn't disclose. Yeah, that's very good information. I mean, we don't need to get into to any names at issue here, and I think uh, – for now, we'll leave those alone. Um, I will say, by way of amplification, that it's it's a standard. I believe it's a standard in Arizona that I don't, I don't know the professional responsibilities 
the attorney professional responsibility rules in, in, in Arizona offhand, shall I say. Uh, I do know the California rules in detail. Uh, nevertheless, I know it's typical, and there's something called the American Bar Association model rules, and it's absolutely in those rules as well. And what I'm talking about is if, let's say, again, I don't know the particulars of this case, and we don't have to get into that, but let's say Bank of America, hypothetically, was one of the defendants in a potential foreclosure lawsuit out of Arizona. Well, if the attorney that you thought about hiring, you know, you the borrower, if that attorney at the time of being retained happened to represent Bank of America in any kind of capacity, it could be an even pretty low-key capacity if it doesn't involve actual open litigation. That attorney, under the model rules, and again, I, I have no reason to think that this wouldn't apply in Arizona, it does apply in California, uh, that attorney would need to disclose. And so I really... Thank you, Bill, for bringing that to your attention. I appreciate your input on the table funding issue. Everybody take one more look at uh, the webinar tomorrow, and I will need to sign off now. Thank you again for being with me today, Bill. Neil will be back next week, and I will be back. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.